Uh, for those of you who may not know, I want to show you a picture of my two boys. Uh, this is Shepard and this is Grayson. Uh, Shepard is 10 and Grayson is 7. And on most days, they're the best of friends. And also on the same days, they're the worst of enemies. And uh, they love each other one moment. They can't stand each other the next. One minute, they're laughing at each other. The other minute, they're making each other cry. But these are my two boys and uh, they bring a lot of excitement a lot of emotion to our house. Uh, they make things very interesting. Some days they make things very challenging. Some days, like your kids, they make things very frustrating. Uh, but I love being a dad. I love being a parent. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is we have a normal routine in our house, just like you do. I think that most families have a morning routine. It's the thing that you do over and over again. You almost do it the same way at the same time every single day. And a morning routine for a family can either be what makes you or breaks you. It, it can work in your favor or it can work against you. It can be helpful or hurtful. And you know, today's message is not about morning routines, but I, I noticed that a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, the morning routine in our house, it, it kind of changed. Now the boys, they're early risers and, and they'll typically get up on most mornings around 5.30 to 5.45. And usually by the time that I walk down the hall and I'm getting ready to go get coffee, uh, one or both of them will speak to me from their bedroom and say, hey dad, they know it's not their mom. And they'll be like, hey dad, and I'll be like, hey buddy, what you doing? And they're like, we're ready for breakfast. I was like, well, come on. And they'll go to the pantry. They'll get some cereal or get some oatmeal or, you know, something like that. And, but a few weeks ago, we started meeting each other at the fireplace and they would bring their cereal and I would bring my coffee and we would just kind of sit there Indian style uh, in front of the fire. And, and somehow it has turned into uh, a storytelling time because inevitably, you know, when we meet each other there on most mornings, one of the boys will look at me and say, dad, tell us a story. I'm like, what kind of story do you want me to tell you? Well, tell us one of those stories about when you used to go coon hunting with your, when your grandpa when you were a kid. Or, or, or tell us one of those stories like when you ran over your girlfriend's cat and blamed it on her mom. Or tell us about the time you accidentally kissed your cousin. Uh, you know, in other words, tell us what it was like to grow up in Southeast Kentucky. Tell us what it was like, you know, in the place that you grew up. And, and so that's usually what I do. I spend the next 20 30 minutes uh, just telling stories and they seem to like it and I have a good time and I've told them stories about how the sandwich was invented by John Montague and, and how he loved to play cards and he accidentally invented the sandwich but he was the fourth Earl of a place called Sandwich and so that's the reason we call it Sandwich. I've told them stories from history. Sometimes I make up stories but I always tell them it's made up beforehand. I tell them stories about from when they were a baby. I, I tell them stories uh, about their future future. I just kind of make it up and cast a little vision and talk about, you know, what they're going to be when they grow older and, you know, maybe what their families look like and what kind of dads they're going to be and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a lot of fun. And, and we've it really enjoyed it. it. It's a great time together. And they end up laughing and then they end up telling stories themselves and they end up asking questions. And, and I was thinking about it the other day and I was thinking these moments that we're having one day will be stories themselves. I'm meeting with them and telling them stories, but one day that whole little event is gonna be a story that they tell maybe to their kids or to their grandkids. And they're gonna say, hey, you know, we used to meet, you know, your grandpa, you know, in front of the fire in the mornings and he'd have coffee and we'd have cereal and we'd just tell stories. And, and I'm convinced that there's gonna be so many great stories that come out of our time together. Matter of fact, there already are great stories coming out of it. This is Grayson. Uh, Grayson is seven and Grayson is Mr. Personality. Uh, he is Mr. Joy. 
he, like his brother, is really intelligent and has his own personality, but they're very, very different. Uh, about a week or so ago, it was about 5.45 in the morning, we were sitting there and Shepard said, I'm gonna go get some more cereal. And so he got up and he walked off. And Grayson looks at me, then looks at his brother, looks at me, looks at his brother. And he waits for his brother to go into the other room. And then he looks at me and says, Dad, I've got a really important question to ask you. And so as a dad, I'm thinking, oh man, this is gonna be big, this is important. Maybe he wants to pray, maybe he wants to talk about Jesus, uh, maybe something, you know, God's speaking to his heart about something, he seems concerned, he, he seems like this is serious. He says, Dad, I got a question and, and I won't tell Shepard the answer, but you can be honest with me and you can trust me but it's an important question. I was like, okay, okay. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, this is, this is, this is when dads show up. This is when we suit up. Th this is it. I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm ready for your question. He looks at me and he looks at Shepard again. He says, dad, just tell me. I can handle it. Are we famous? I said, who? He said, us. I said, no, we're not famous. He said, well, everybody at Kroger knows who you are. I said, well, it's a small Kroger and it's a small town, brother. And no, we're not famous. And he says, well, you know, but I, I kind of feel like people love us on social media. I said, people love kids on social media. Wait till you get my age and the haters come out to hate. I said, that's just the way it is. And I've told that story. I love that story because it was just like, I thought it was gonna be something that it totally turned out not to be. Dad, are we famous? And I've told that story over and over and over and over again since it happened because that's the nature of stories. Stories are invaluable. Uh, we tell stories to lighten mood. We tell stories to make a point. We tell stories to entertain. But when you think about stories in and of themselves, because I love, I love stories and like you, I love stories. I love to tell them. I love to listen to them. But when it comes to storytelling, because maybe you had a class on it once upon a time, they taught you how to write one, they taught you how to tell one, but, but stories, when it comes to stories, they are intended to communicate what is meaningful. That's what stories ultimately are for. They are meant to communicate what is meaningful in a way that ultimately proves to be memorable. Before we wrote things down, before there were written histories, there were oral histories and families and tribes and peoples would get together and around fire or around dinner, they would tell stories of things that were meaningful and they would tell those stories so that they would become memorable, so that those stories would live on. That's ultimately the point of storytelling. It's as old as humanity itself. And before we had words to tell stories, we painted pictures to communicate stories. Now, when you tell stories, you try to emotionalize the information. And whenever you can emotionalize information, you then make the information personal because if the person listening to the information feels emotion, they then regard that information as personal. And so they're ready to embrace it or at least to remember it or to think about it. And so that's what stories does. It takes information and emotionalizes it. Uh, great stories can change the way that we think, it can change the way that we feel, and even change the way that we decide to live our lives. That's, that's the way stories work. And so here we are on the first Sunday of December, and all of that gets me thinking about the Christmas story. Uh, because this is a story that is known around the world. This is a story that 
Many people know the plot line and many people can communicate the story even if they claim not to believe it. So people know the Christmas story, those who believe it and those who openly say, no, I don't believe it. It's just out there. And in just a few weeks, people all around the world will take a moment of time and celebrate the Christmas story. Now, when it comes to the Christmas story, I know that most of us know at least the big parts of the story. But I'm afraid that the story has become so romanticized and sanitized that that we no longer see the Christmas story for what the Christmas story was intended to be. We've seen too many Christmas plays, we've watched too many Christmas movies, we've looked at too many Christmas cards, and everything seems so clean and neat. But the Christmas story is not clean and it is not neat because real life is neither clean nor neat most of the time. Matter of fact, the Christmas story is a messy story intended to be told to messy people because we're all messy people. We make messes of things. We make wrong decisions and wrong turns and we fail and fall down and all of that. And that's really what the Christmas story is about. It's a messy story. It's not clean, it's not neat, and it's intended to benefit the ears of people who struggle with making a mess in life. And that's the Christmas story, and that's why I love it so much, because it's full of real people who have real struggles, who face real problems, who experience real dysfunctions, not only in their own life, but when their lives intersect other people. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And you take away the featured character of a virgin who's pregnant, take away the angels and take away the hippies that are following the star across the Mideast. You take all of that out and the story is remarkably human. It's strikingly human. The Christmas story is full of emotions that you know and that I know very well, like disappointment and confusion and guilt and anger, and fear. All the emotions that at some point you've struggled with or carried around, those emotions you will find in the Christmas story to one degree or another. But yet this is a story we primarily talk about once a year, which is really the tragedy of it because the Christmas story is the story that we visit once a year, but it is the story that we talk about once a year that can really help us make sense of everything that's happened in all the previous years. And it's a way to help us to anticipate and to prepare for whatever else life may throw at us in the years to come. That's the Christmas story. Now, when it comes to how the Christmas story begins, I'm going to venture out to say that when most people think about the beginning of the Christmas story, it doesn't begin the way they think it actually begins. When most people think about the Christmas story and they would begin to tell the story with, you know, either the angels or Mary or Joseph or the Magi or shepherds or Bethlehem or a manger. But, but that's not where the Christmas story begins. The Christmas story actually begins in the most unexpected way. The Christmas story actually begins with silence. And that's not the way that you typically think of starting a story. We use silence after the story gets going, but the Christmas story begins with a pregnant pause. See, in storytelling or in writing, uh, especially storytelling, it's it's the thing that we use, this pause, this silence. It's the thing that we use to cause people to kind of think a little bit. Because when you go quiet or you pause for just a moment, it kind of raises attention. It causes us to listen a little more. It grabs our attention. And so, you know, professors and teachers will teach people when they tell stories, don't be afraid to let something hang out there for a moment. 
don't be afraid of silence because in the quiet, people begin to pay attention. In the quiet, suspense begins to be raised and people begin to wonder what's happening because that's the way that silence works. Now, the Christmas story begins in silence. And in the first century, the Christmas story had already started, but yet no one knew because it started in silence. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a great story. And if you're not, you know, very familiar with the Bible, I'll catch you up in two minutes. The Old Testament is a great story about how God made a promise to Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham to one day, through one of his descendants, to send a savior into the world. And God promised Abraham that one day, he would, begin, he would have a family, and that family would become a nation, and that nation would become a kingdom. And out of that kingdom and out of that nation of people, one day would, become, would come the Messiah, the savior of the world. And the Old Testament is that story playing out. The descendants of Abraham became a family, they became a nation, they became a kingdom. And that kingdom lasted for 500 years, and then that kingdom was destroyed. But yet God's promise was still lingering in the air. God had taken the descendants of Abraham, they'd become a nation, they had become a kingdom, but the savior of the world that God promised Abraham had not yet arrived. And so as the Old Testament ends, we find a group of people, the Israelites, who were struggling to keep hold of hope. And the Old Testament, as N.T. Wright said, it is a story in search of an ending. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, there is no ending. It just abruptly ends. And it abruptly ends with the last prophet of the Old Testament. His name was Malachi. And Malachi, his book is basically a glimmer of hope for the future. A glimmer of hope that says God will keep that promise. But that's all that he offered was a glimmer of hope. And so the Old Testament ends then on a note of deep disappointment because God hadn't kept his promise. It ends with unfulfilled longings, with only this faint hope that still exists in the air. Just a few people still holding on to hope, believing that God would ultimately keep his promise. Now, after Malachi writes his final words, God goes silent. At the end of the Old Testament, God goes quiet. God goes off the air. The lights go down. And God's not gonna be heard of or heard from in 400 years. There's gonna be 400 years that go by and God's not gonna say a word. There's gonna be 400 years and there's not gonna be a miracle. There's not gonna be a prophecy. There's not gonna be a prophet. And for the people of God, it was like God was there and then he was gone. God was talking to us and now he's just gone silent. And some of us know how frustrating that can be because you can text a friend. And all of a sudden, the friend is texting you back. And every time you text them, they text you right back. And then you text them again, and it's quiet. It's like, where did you go? What happened? We, just, we were just talking. That's kind of how it was with God. God was talking to Israel, and Israel was talking to God. And then all of a sudden, God goes quiet. And God's nowhere to be found. And some of you, in your journey of faith, you know what that feels like. Because you've been at that spot where it seems like God went silent. God went absent. It was like God was ignoring your prayers. God wasn't paying attention to what was going on in your life. God wasn't paying attention to how you felt. You, you, you assumed that God somehow was disinterested in you because it didn't seem like he was anywhere close. That God had gotten distracted by something else because he didn't seem particularly interested in what was happening in your life. You felt forgotten by God. God seemed silent and God seemed absent. You were praying for something big 
something meaningful, something important, something that was crushing your soul, something that was breaking your heart, and you were praying, and you were asking God to intervene. You were asking God to heal somebody. You were asking God to change something, and it just felt like God wasn't there. It just felt like God wasn't listening. It felt like God had walked away, and that's kind of how it felt for Israel. And it's in those seasons that sometimes Christians don't help too much, right? I mean, we're praying, we're bearing our soul to God and it doesn't seem like he's listening. It doesn't even seem like he's present. And then we go to, you know, a small group and we go to church and somebody gets up and says, I just wanna give a word of praise. Just wanna give a word of praise. Well, tell us about the word of praise. Well, I, I, I was running behind, just had my hair done the other day, went to Walmart, couldn't find a parking space. And I asked Jesus to open up a parking space so I could get in, get out and not mess up my hair. And so help me in Jesus' name, there was a spot opened up and I pulled right in. And here you are, your soul's getting crushed. You're praying about something that you think is life and death and God seems like he's nowhere to be found, but yet he's over here answering so-and-so's request about a parking space? You're like, what? How does that work? And that's kind of where Israel was. God was there, but then he wasn't. And like you get with your friends when you get ghosted on a text or you call someone and they don't call you back. Some of you didn't know you had a problem with a friend until they went silent. And you just kept texting and you just kept texting and you just kept texting and nothing. You kept calling, you kept calling, you kept calling and nothing. You didn't know your wife was mad at you until you got home that evening and then you tried to talk and it was crickets, silence. Because in the silence, often we find that something is wrong. In the silence, we begin to be suspicious that something is wrong. Why didn't you call me back? Why didn't you respond? Is something wrong? Did I do something? We can text someone and they don't text us back and within two hours, we've already created a whole scenario of why they're ticked off at us. It happened three weeks ago. I can't believe I said that in front of them. That must be what they're mad about. Because in the silence, we begin to question everything, especially relationships. And that's where God and Israel was. Israel was left in the dark. They were left in the silence. And for 400 years, no one hears from God. The New Testament opens up and it's silence. No one knows that the story has began. Nobody knows that Christmas, the story is now playing out. But out of the silence, the story begins. And this is, this is where we pick it up in Luke. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah had no idea he was about to be swept up in the Christmas story. He had no idea. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth had no idea she was part of the Christmas story because it begins in silence. There's not an announcement that, hey, you are central characters in the story of Christmas. They have no idea. She was also a descendant of Aaron. Now we're introduced to some folks who anchored the Christmas story in history. Uh, Herod, he ruled in Palestine. He was the king of the Jews from around 37 BC to four BC. Just FYI, Jesus wasn't born at zero between BC and AD. Jesus was probably born somewhere between four and six BC because Jesus had to be born while Herod was still on the throne. Uh, Herod was a political genius. He's gonna be this monster that's gonna kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem a little bit later on in the story. 
Uh, his dad was really great friends with Julius Caesar. That's how he got his, you know, his start in politics. He, he ran in the circles of Octavian and, and Mark Antony. Uh, this is a guy who was given a, a, an army by the Roman Senate when he became king of the Jews. So you've got Herod. So this anchors it in history. And then you have two people who are part of the Christmas story that we hardly ever think is part of the Christmas story. It's Zachariah and Elizabeth. And we're talking about two people who have some serious pedigree. Both of them can trace their family lineage back to priests. Uh, this was a power couple in the first century. Uh, they are part of the aristocratic priestly class. They know people and people know them. They are a part of the Christmas story, but yet they have no idea because it's all silent. In this moment, God's working, but they can't hear him working. God's moving, but they can't see him moving. It's the silent beginning to the Christmas story. And so this is what Luke says about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were not like a lot of people in the religious establishment. These people had real faith. It was real to them. They lived every day believing that God one day would keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one day through the nation of Israel would come the savior of the world. And every day because of that faith and because of that hope, they got up and they made the tough choice. We're gonna do the right thing today. Whenever we have a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing, we are gonna choose the right thing even when it's the hard thing. And every day they just got up and they were choosing to do the right thing. They were choosing to do the good thing. And this couple, they're good at being good. Now, not all of us are good at being good, but they were good at being good. And for those of us who aren't so good at being good, we look at people like that and we're like, how do you do it? Tell us the secret. You just get up and most days you're just doing it well and you're living right and you're blameless. Heck, most of us don't even like to read all the commandments, much less obey all the commandments. And so here they are. I mean, they're just doing it well. And we're like, how do you do that? But that's the type of people they were. And they were living in a generation where a lot of people had walked away from faith. A lot of people had given up the promise that God made to Abraham. A lot of people had given up on the reality of God itself, but yet they trusted God. And every day they got up and they stayed hopeful and they stayed faithful. That's who they were. And they're significant. And there's something we can learn from them. They're blameless, they're righteous, but listen to what Luke says in the next verse, but they were childless. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, in the first century, in most people's minds, when uh, a couple was barren, it was the judgment of God. It, it was God exposing some type of secret sin in their life. And almost always, it was considered to be the woman's fault. That was the culture of the day. And so they walked around for years, wanting a child, but could have no children. This represented the single most important unanswered prayer in their life. And it's been my experience as a pastor, and it's been my experience with my own faith. I believe that every single person who follows Jesus carries around one, two, three major unanswered prayers that they think about from time to time. Things that they ask God to do. That time they ask God to intervene. And even though we really thought God would, and even though we really thought God should, God didn't. This was their prayer request that God had never answered. 
This was the point of Elizabeth and Zechariah's pain. They wanted a child, but they could not have one, though they begged God for years. God, give us a child, give us a child, give us a child. They'd lived right. They had done the right thing, but yet no child. And so one day, Zechariah, the priest, he's doing his priestly duties in the temple. Now, in those days, there were 24 divisions of priests, and there were multiple priests within those divisions. And usually, once in a lifetime, you got selected to go into the holy place to do your priestly duties. And so they would cast lots or, you know, roll dice, and based on how the die came up, you would either be in or out. And Zechariah, it came up, he was going to go in. He, he was going to have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as far as his career went. He was going to get to go into the holy place. He was going to get to, you know, go to the table of showbread, the candelabra, the altar of incense. He was going to get to go back there where some priests never get to go their entire life. And so this is his once-in-a-lifetime. And he just thinks that, man, this is, this is my day. I'm, I'm getting to do what I've always trained for. I'm getting to do what I've always wanted to do. You know, this was their life. They were childless, but they were people of faith and people of hope. And they have no idea that they're a part of something that's gonna change the world. They have no idea that they are in the Christmas story. They have no idea because it's all so quiet. God hasn't spoken to anyone. He's not spoken to Zachariah. He's not spoken to Elizabeth. It's all been silent for 400 years. So he goes in and he's working in the temple and it says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is the first time that anybody has seen an angel in 500 years, dating back all the way to the days of Daniel. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, and he brings him a message from God, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call his name John. You see, the first baby in the Christmas story is not Jesus. The first mother in the Christmas story is not Mary. It's Elizabeth. The first father that we're introduced to in the Christmas story is not Joseph. It is Zachariah. And John is the first baby whose birth is announced by an angel. And I find it very, very intriguing. And I also find it very encouraging that the first message that the angel delivered to Zechariah was, God heard your prayer. Because perhaps Zechariah and Elizabeth had carried around the weight for years that God had stopped listening to their prayers, that God didn't care about their prayers, that God was distracted or God was not interested in what they were broken hearted about. Zechariah, God has heard your prayers. It may have felt like God wasn't hearing your prayer. It may have seemed like God wasn't hearing your prayer, but God was hearing your prayer. Your heavenly father knows and your heavenly father cares. Every prayer you whispered, he heard it. Every tear you shed, he saw it. He's been here the whole time. And just because he's been silent doesn't mean that he's not been listening. He's heard every single prayer. Now, for some of us, in whatever's going on in our life, whatever's going down in our heart, whatever's going on in the family, whatever's going on at home, that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to be reminded of more than anything else. 
that God hears our prayers. And for some of us, if we were honest, that's all we need to know because we're almost ready to give up faith that God's listening. Some of us are almost to the point where we're really ready to give up faith that God's even there. If we could just know that God was listening, even though God's silent, that we could be confident that God knows and God cares, that God hears our prayers, God sees our tears. He knows what's crushing our hearts and souls. He knows what burdens our minds. If we just knew for a fact that God was listening, for some of us, it would be enough. And so Zechariah, he listens to the angel and the angel says, okay, you're gonna have a son and his name's gonna be John. Let me talk about him. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God because many people had walked away from faith. Many people had given up on the notion that God exists and that God would keep his promises. And so Zechariah, he listens to this angelic visitor. He, he listens to this angel say, you know what? You're gonna have a son and let me tell you about your son. He's gonna be a winner. He's gonna be a difference maker. He's gonna be a game changer. He's gonna change the landscape of things. And, and speaking as a dad, I mean, if, if heaven shows up and says, hey, you and your wife are gonna have a son and he's gonna change things, man. He's gonna be a win. You, you just don't understand how awesome your son's gonna be. I'm telling you, as a dad, you're just sitting there thinking, this is great. This is great. I mean, I, I would have taken a loser, but it's good to know I got a winner. You know, at this point, I just, I just wanted to be a father and, and my wife just wanted to be a mother, but you're telling us we're gonna have a son. His name's John and he's gonna go out there and make a difference in his nation and in the world. And so then everybody starts talking about all of this because, you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're old. And then all of a sudden, Elizabeth's showing. She's prego, full-blown prego. And people are looking at Elizabeth and then they're looking at Zechariah and the guys down at the temple are saying, way to go, man, good golly, I, how'd you do that? I don't know, man, I'm just telling you. And, you know, the women are looking at Elizabeth and Elizabeth, how do you even have the energy? You know, I, I didn't even know you all still could and now you're pregnant. And it's like, I know, this is who we are and this is the Christmas story. Give some of you hope. Right, maybe just give you some, just a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's not over for us. But some folks, they read this story and they think that this in some way has nothing to do with Christmas. This is just like the front side of something that Luke throws in there that doesn't really matter in this moment. But this, this is really the beginning of the Christmas story. And when the angel speaks to Zechariah, that's the moment that the silence broke. So the story of Christmas, it started in silence, but then God, takes the silence to announce the birth of a baby. And it's not the birth of Jesus, it's the birth of his cousin, John. And so everybody starts talking about this, you can imagine. And Luke throws this in, he says, everyone who heard about this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. And so everybody expected this baby to do great things. I mean, there was a lot of expectation. There were a lot of assumptions and a lot of pressure on John as he grew up. And, and I don't know if you grew up with a lot of pressure from your parents or grandparents or, you know, somebody cast a big vision for your life and said, this is what you're going to do. This is all the things you're going to accomplish. That can be a little weighty. That, that can be a little bit of a burden. And so John grew up with that. And maybe that explains why John turned out so eccentric. You know, we're, we're introduced to him later on as an adult and he's wearing camel hair and he's eating, you know, locust and honey. And he's a little bit of a strange guy. I mean, he's not particularly normal. And he's a guy who loves to rage against the machine, both political and religious. And that's how we're introduced to him. He, he calls out his dad's old buddies down at the temple and he calls them hypocrites and he calls them snakes. 
His claim to fame, John, the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, his claim to fame is going to be one day he's down at the River Jordan and he baptizes people, which is how he got the nickname John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And he's down there baptizing people and one day he stops baptizing everyone because he sees his cousin Jesus walk up. Now, John, I'm sure, had been told stories from the time that he was old enough to comprehend about how his dad had got visited by an angel and his mom got pregnant in old age and how the angel predicted that one day John would do something great. But he also knew the story about his cousin Mary and how Mary had got visited by an angel and how she was a virgin and she got pregnant and knew all about Joseph and the angels that visited him and knew about the shepherds and knew about the wise men. And he had heard these stories about his cousin's birth from the time that he was born himself because his stories were told to him over and over and over again. And so John looks up one day and sees Jesus and he stops. And the most known statement that John would ever whisper came in that moment and he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus walks into the water and John baptizes his cousin, Jesus, in the Jordan River. And when he baptized Jesus, there was a voice heard from heaven God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John heard that. Think of everything that John saw, everything that John heard, everything that John knew, dating back to the birth of his cousin Jesus. And in John chapter one, this is what John said about Jesus. He said, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. And this is what John the Baptist believed with all of his heart. This is what he believed with all of his soul. He would have died for that. He would have staked his life on that. After all he'd seen, after all he heard, no wonder he said, he's got to increase. I've got to decrease. I was born before him, but somehow he preexisted me. He's the one that you need to follow. I'm not even worthy to loose the sandals on his feet. John could see it all so clearly. And he says, this is God's chosen one. And that's why we call John the forerunner of the Messiah because his job was to get people ready for Jesus's arrival. And beginning that day at the Jordan River, John began to point to Jesus. And he began to point at his own followers and say, you need to follow him and not me. So John's crowd began to dwindle and Jesus's crowd began to increase. But as John drifted into the background of this story, he doesn't stop preaching. He stays faithful like his mom and his dad. And he keeps preaching against the establishment of his day. He was bold. He was courageous like that. He, he started preaching at some of the things happening in Herod's palace. And because of it, he ended up in prison. Now, I, I don't know this to be a fact, but I imagine this part of the story. I imagine that John always had a little extra courage, that he always had a, a little extra bravery because he knew that if he ever got in trouble, his cousin, Jesus, would have his back. After all that he had done for Jesus, he'd said, behold the Lamb of God. He sent all of those people away from himself to follow Jesus. After everything that John had done for Jesus, I wonder if John kind of felt like, if I ever get in a pinch, my cousin's got my back. Jesus has got my back. He'll be there. And so even though he ends up at a place that he thought he probably would never end up, which was prison, because even though we know that life can throw some pretty unfortunate things at us, it's been my experience that whenever life does throw unfortunate things at us, in some way we're always surprised. We see it happening to other people and we're not shocked. It happens to us, we're surprised. 
We knew it could happen, but we just thought it wouldn't happen. And so I think that John ends up in prison and he never thought that he would be there. He's sent to a place called Machaerus. And he's there at a fortress that's next to the Dead Sea that overlooks the desert. He's in a place that he doesn't want to be and he's in a place that he didn't expect to be. So it says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, because Jesus apparently didn't know about it. If he did know, he didn't let anybody know that he knew. So this is the moment that Jesus finds out that John's in prison. And what should we expect Jesus to do? John is his cousin. John was a friend in the ministry. John was his forerunner. What is Jesus going to do when he finds out John is in prison? It says he withdrew himself to Galilee. He left Nazareth and he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. Jesus hears that John is cousins in prison. He's being kept in the desert, as miserable and as horrible as that must be. And the first thing that Jesus did when he heard it, he said, let's go to the lake. We need a weekend at the water. Let me give you a picture of Israel. This, this, is, this is the nation of Israel, Palestine in the first century. And here you have the Sea of Galilee and down here you have the Dead Sea. I'm gonna zoom in for just, just a little bit. Down here is Machaerus. This is where John the Baptist is in prison. You got the Dead Sea here and nothing but desert out there that John is looking at. I mean, it's dry, it's dead. I mean, it's a bad place to be. Jesus is up here near Nazareth when he hears this news. And when he hears news that John is in prison, we would expect him maybe to take a step in that direction. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus moves away and goes up towards the Sea of Galilee to go hang out at the lake for a few days. This is not what we would expect Jesus to do. Jesus doesn't take a step in John's direction. He actually takes a step in the other direction. And that should bother us a little bit. It bothered John. Jesus is moving in the opposite direction. Jesus goes quiet. Jesus is absent. I'm sure John's been praying for rescue. I'm sure some of his followers have been praying for rescue. But while John and some of his friends are praying for him to be set free, Jesus decides we're gonna go to the lake. We're not gonna do anything. Jesus doesn't even say anything. He just says, we're going to the lake. And a year and a half goes by. 547 silent days. 547 silent nights. Jesus doesn't go see John. Jesus doesn't send a message to John. John's left seemingly all alone for 547 days. That's his cousin. This is a guy, John baptized him. They're family. Jesus is nowhere to be found. And after all of that silence, it says when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him. So John said, hey, I want you to go ask Jesus a question. He's got a couple of assistants. He said, go ask Jesus this question. Are you the one who should come or should we look for someone else? This is the guy who on the other side of prison said, this is God's chosen one. This is God's lamb who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is Messiah. This is the son of God. In prison, are you the one 
or should we look for another? Because in the silence of it all, he begins to question it all. This is John, who knew all the stories about his own birth and about Jesus' birth. This was John, who saw everything that he saw, experienced everything that he experienced, heard the words of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But yet in the darkness of prison, in the silence of prison, he questions everything. Because that's how it works when seemingly God goes quiet. In the silence, we begin to question. In the difficulty, we often begin to doubt. And so John says, are you the one or should we look for another? But the real question I think John's asking is this, where are you? Why are you not here? Why, why have you not sent a note? Why have you not sent a message? Do you not know I'm here? And if you know that I'm here, where are you? Did anything that I did for you matter? Don't you know I sent my own followers to follow you? I said, I got a decrease and you've got to increase. Did any of that matter to you? Where are you? Are you really the one? Because I, I, I've been thinking about it for 547 silent days and nights and I'm beginning to think that maybe you're not God's chosen one. You know what's, you know what's happening? Circumstances are turning John's convictions into questions because that's what circumstances can do. They have the power to turn a conviction into a question. And so here's the principle. Don't question in the dark what you first believed in the light. John saw, John heard, John experienced. John had evidence. John had reason to believe what he believed and he had made a conscious intellectual decision to believe that Jesus was the chosen one. He made that decision in the light of the evidence. But now that the lights have gone out and God's gone silent, now in the dark, he's questioning everything he started believing in the light. And if you don't watch out, and if I don't watch out, when the lights go out and God goes seemingly silent, we will question in the dark what we decided to believe when we were in the light. And this is what's going on with John. In the loneliness and the isolation of it all, what he once believed with all of his heart now seemed totally unbelievable. Jesus has disappointed him. Jesus has failed to meet John's expectations. And so Jesus, he looks at those two messengers of John and said, okay, he wants to know. Let me tell you. He says, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Don't miss this. If I would have been there, I would have said, Jesus, is, is that really what you want to tell John? You say, why? What's the big deal? Because basically, here's what Jesus is saying. Go tell John what I'm doing for everybody else, but not him. Go tell him what I'm doing for everybody else. He just doesn't happen to be part of it. Yeah, he spent his life and he was the forerunner, but I want you to go tell him what's happening to all these people up here. I want you to tell him about the good that's going on in some other people's lives. It's like, Jesus, is it, are you for sure that's what you wanna send back? It doesn't really seem like the message you wanna lead with. And so they began to head back and I think Jesus, he spoke up and said, oh yeah, but one more thing, tell John, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
tell, tell John not to stumble over me. Jesus, are you saying that sometimes you're the stumbling block? Yes. Jesus, are you saying you know everything that's been going on in John's life for the past 547 days? Yes. And you've just not chosen to do anything about it? Yes. Jesus, are you saying you could rescue him if you wanted to, but since you haven't, it means that you don't want to? Maybe. Jesus, are, are you saying that John, who did all the things that he did for you, that he doesn't, he doesn't have enough in his account to get you to do him a favor? Right. Blessed is the person who doesn't stumble because of me. In other words, Jesus said, don't be offended by what I choose to do or I choose not to do. Tell John, blessed is the person who does not stumble over me. And here's Jesus' point. This is big. This is where we leave it. Sometimes God will do things we don't approve of. And sometimes God will do things that we wouldn't do. And God will seemingly refuse to do things that we would do. And Jesus said, in those moments where God does something you don't approve of, in those moments when you seemingly are disappointed with God, don't trip over God. Don't let him be the stumbling block. God is God and you are not. So the message Jesus has given us is this, trust God when you disagree with him and trust God when he disappoints you. Because there will come a time when you disagree with God and there will come a time that you are disappointed with God. But in those moments, don't stop trusting God. And though you would do it different, and though you would have answered, and though you would have intervened and God didn't, don't stop trusting God. When God doesn't meet your expectations, don't stop trusting God. You say, was Jesus mad at John? No. Had John done something wrong? No. Was he trying to teach John a lesson? No. Matter of fact, here's how John was regarded by Jesus. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus considered John the greatest man who'd ever been born. But even the greatest man who had ever been born God had a plan that didn't look like John's plan. Jesus' will was not the same as John's will. And in the dark, in the silence, John questioned everything. And the thing that Jesus doesn't offer is telling. He doesn't offer John an explanation because our hope isn't found in explanations. Our hope is found in the promises of God. And that's what the Christmas story reminds us of, that in the darkness of your life, in the silence that we may encounter from time to time when it comes to our relationship with God, we come back to the Christmas story and we're reminded what the angel said. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God doesn't offer us explanations of why he does or doesn't do what he does or doesn't do. But what he does give us is a promise. He gives us a promise right in the middle of the Christmas story 
that no matter what, he's going to be with us, that God has made a way to be with us. And it teaches us the fact that God, though he may be silent, he will never be absent. That's the Christmas reminder. God may be silent, but he does not go absent because he is God with us. And the Christmas story on the personal side, it reminds me that no matter what, God is for me and God is with me in the darkness, in the silence, in the unanswered prayer. When I would do it different, when God disappoints me, when I disagree with the way that God's handling it, I can believe and trust that God is for me and God is with me. And that's what the beginning of the Christmas story teaches us. It is a story born out of silence. And in the silence, we learn that God can be trusted. In the silence, we learn not to question in the dark what we first believed in the light. And in the silence of Christmas, we're reminded that God is for us. And no matter what, no matter how quiet God may seem to be, God is with us. He hears our prayers. He knows He's got a plan. It's for our good and for his glory. And though we may disapprove and though it may disappoint, we trust him anyway. Heavenly Father, that's the kind of faith we pray for. I'm not sure I have that type of faith, but I would love to have the type of faith that trusts you when I disagree with you a faith that trusts you when I'm disappointed in what you've allowed to happen or what you've refused to do. I wanna trust you when the lights go out. I wanna trust you when things go quiet. And I wanna hold on to your promises. In particular, that you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You walk with us in every single circumstance of life. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You're with us all the way to the end. And that's what we cling to. That's the type of faith we want. That believes you're always there. You're always listening. You always care. That's what we pray. Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.